It is interesting. Um, so Pastor Aaron would have been the one who would have worked together, uh, worked to, to put together the order of our service this morning and all of the special music and various things that would be a part of what we would do today. And uh, I don't know if he did this on purpose or not. Um, a number of years ago, we did a Christmas series uh, about Christmas hymns, and we looked at, we examined the uh, theology within some of them. And I don't know if you were here, if you remember this or not, and, and maybe you'll hear this for the first time this morning, but Joy to the World is actually not a song about the birth of Jesus. The song Joy to the World is actually about the second coming of Jesus. Uh, when and where we started singing it as a Christmas song, I'm not really sure, but the main reason I told you that this morning is because, I don't know if Pastor Ren did all this on purpose as he was planning the schematics of our service, but a song about the second coming of Jesus uh, in our Christmas setting is a perfect segue to our text this morning. Uh, because you may be even looking at the screen thinking, Simeon, I, I don't know much about Simeon. Uh, I would tell you, you're not alone. Uh, I, I prepared, I've been studying over the course of the last month or so, this Christmas series, and, and we come to this week where we look at Simeon, and I've studied him, I've read a number of commentaries, and I don't know a lot about Simeon. And, and that's not because we've not studied, or maybe because you don't know, per se. It's because there's not a lot about him. In fact, as we finish our series, The Insignificance of Christmas this morning, again, I want to remind you, especially because we do have some, some visitors this morning, who maybe this is the first time they've been a part of this series, we're not minimizing Christmas, we're not reducing the significance of Christmas, we're examining individuals who are a part of the Christmas narrative, and we're using the word insignificance, as you can see the form there, as a noun. We're examining individuals who are a part of the Christmas narrative who really are not prominent people. Um, some of them are more well-known. So far, we've examined Zechariah, John the Baptist's dad. We've looked at Joseph. We've looked at the shepherds. And so uh, perhaps, you know, we think of the shepherds or maybe Joseph. You, you, you're like, oh, yeah, I knew a little bit more about that guy. I didn't know quite as much about Zechariah. And if I'm willing to say this morning, it's probably a scenario where you say, I don't really know anything about Simeon. That's okay. Uh, I want to learn a little bit together about Sir, uh, Simeon this morning, but also in learning, what I really want us to be able to do is to see our heart's posture as we think about Christmas, as we think about this season, and, and contrast that to what our heart posture ought to be, right? And not just today, but all throughout the year. And Simeon, though a whole of 10 verses of Scripture, that's it, a whole of 10 verses of Scripture are given to Simeon, though it's only 10 verses, we can learn a lot about or from this man. He's found at the temple scene when Christ is presented, Mary and Joseph, according to the law of Moses. Let's read our text together. Luke chapter 2, I'm going to begin reading in verse 22. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout 
waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and the sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for the historical account of the birth of your son, the Savior of the world. We thank you this morning, God, for the obedience of not just Jesus after he was born and would grow and become a man and would would faithfully live out your will, but God, for the obedience of other individuals in Scripture as well. We thank you that Mary and Joseph were obedient to what you had declared as necessary in your word. We're thankful that those who had heard from you were where you had called them to be and where you had led them to be. And God, we're thankful that as we look at all of these factors, we see and we're reminded again, God, that you are faithful to your promises. And so we thank you today for your faithfulness. It may not cross our minds often, but you did not have to provide a savior. You did not have to redeem sinful people, but you did. And in your grace and in your mercy, God, we can know you because you redeemed sinful man. And so we thank you today for Jesus. We thank you for the one who is the Savior, who has been given to do just that, to redeem sinful people to you, that, God, we might have a right relationship, even as sinful people, with the holy, perfect, creating sovereign, sustaining God of the universe. Father, we thank you for how you have worked today. And we pray that you would help our hearts to be being prepared each and every day for the work that you're yet to do. And may we, like Simeon, God, wait for the the final stages. God, the finishing touches, if you will, of all that you're yet to do. God, may our lives be changed for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And so as we prepare to look at Simeon this morning, as he ultimately is um, our individual of attention or focus this morning, I want to quickly examine the obedience of Mary and Joseph as they go into the temple, as they observe what's been commanded, as they uh, make purification according to law, and as they, sacri- as they offer a sacrifice to God. So we'll start quickly in the first few verses by just observing Mary and Joseph keeping the law. Right again, verse 22, uh, we see uh, just as in keeping when the time came for the purification according to the law, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the temple. And so what we have here is the reality that God has said, this is what will transpire any time a male is born. This is what I expect of my children. Uh, This is what those who belong to me will do. And so Mary and Joseph, as those who would belong to God, they keep his law. They go to the temple on the 41st day. 
Okay, in the book of Leviticus, we read of the purification laws, Leviticus 12, 1 through 8. We won't take the time to read that this morning. But that following the birth of a son, the mother would be considered unclean for seven days. So she has this seven-day purification time frame. And then following the seven days of purification, there would be another period of 33 days that a woman must wait in order for her purification to be complete. So you combine 7 and 33, you get on the 41st day... Okay, 7 and 33 is 40. So there's days have passed. On the 41st day, a woman who has birthed a boy is free to return to the temple. But not just for the sole purpose of, of coming to the temple or just for worshiping. There are still th- some things that God has declared in his law that, that need to take place. Okay, And so as they go to the temple, they're, they're going in preparation of being obedient. They're going in preparation of doing the things that God has declared they were to do. And one of the things, as we read, that God has declared that his people, the Israelites, the Jews would do, is they would consecrate their firstborn to the Lord. In Exodus 13, we read this in verse 2, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. And so God says, when, when, a, when a, a, a baby is born, that could be a baby cow, that could be a baby boy, whatever is the first to be born is to be consecrated or is to be given back to me. It's to be set apart for the purpose of being given back to me. And, and, and this is all done out of an act of obedience to God in remembrance of the fact that, as we're reading in Exodus 13, By this point, the plagues have taken place. The Jews are making their way out of Egypt and into the promised land that that God has promised to give to them. And there's a lot of things going on, and it's it's a grand narrative. If you've never read the book of Exodus, they come out of their bondage in Egypt and God leads them through the wilderness and there's all kinds of miracles and the the parting of the Red Sea and all of these other things. And, And so as God is declaring To the Jews, part of what he has them to do, he says, you want to consecrate the firstborn to me as a remembrance of what I've done. As you're consecrating that child, as you're giving that baby back, it's it's in, um, I don't want to say appreciation, but it's in memory or memorandum of what it is God has done. That the nation of Israel was stuck in bondage as slaves in Egypt, and they could do nothing about it. They couldn't overthrow Pharaoh. They couldn't overcome the military prowess of Egypt. They were stuck. And God miraculously brings them out of bondage in Egypt. And so in keeping this law, not only would the onlooking world and the Jews be reminded of the fact that Israel belonged to God, But we also read, if we keep going in that Exodus passage, that God says, when you do this, your kids will literally ask you, what does this mean? Why are you consecrating your firstborn to the Lord? And I want to paint a picture for you, right? Well, Susie, well, Jimmy, it's because God has been faithful to our people. It's because God brought us out of a situation that we couldn't get out of ourselves. And I, you know, I, I don't, I try not to just always jump from one parallel to the other, but I would be amiss, I think, if I didn't pause for just a second and say 
you know, the whole hoopla and reality of this time of year. I hope if you have kids and maybe they're grown, maybe they're not yet, maybe they're still small, maybe there's been an opportunity somewhere along the way where your kids have said, why do we do this? What are we doing here? And maybe not just with Christmas. I mean, I don't, I, my, my oldest is 10 and she is so inquisitive, but she's just like me. Sometimes it drives me off the wall because there's so many questions. Again, she's observant. She's paying all these attentions. That's not me knocking my daughter. She gets it honest. But I know my kid isn't the only one who says, why do we have to do it this way? Or why are we doing it this way? Or, or what is the point of this? And God literally tells us in his word that there are things that he called his children to do, the Jews, in order that their kids would say, Mom, Dad, why are we doing this? And that the onlooking world, as they watch the Jews do things that were different, might ask some of the same questions. Doesn't mean they would believe, doesn't mean that they would come around, but nonetheless, there's this curiosity that gets sparked. And whether your kids have ever asked you or not, they want to know why you go to church. They want to know why you say that this is important. They want to know why maybe your life has changed. They want to know why maybe you do some things differently than you used to. That's by God's design. If you're following God and you're obedient to what he has declared in his word, the goal is that those close to you would, why do we do this? Why are you the way you are? What's different about you? So we see the same reality, right? They consecrate the firstborn here in this context so that the family, their kids, those around them would say, why have we done this? And so that the parents could speak to the faithfulness of God. So they could speak to all of the things that he has done. And maybe as you think about this process unfolding, I know my mind went to, perhaps your mind does as well, goes to the book of 1 Samuel. And Hannah, when she does this very thing, she prays for a son and God gives her a son and she presents him back to God. She has a son and she gives him to God, literally totally surrendering herself and her son to whatever God has for him. We see Mary, is. this is exactly what Mary is doing. She's coming back and she's offering up, she's consecrating her son to the Lord. And I don't know if in those moments she knew exactly what that would mean. I don't know if she knew in those moments that in about 33 years, Simeon's going to tell her in a few minutes, we'll look at in a few verses, she would literally stand on a hillside and watch her firstborn son be murdered. She gave him back to God. She gave him back to God for his plans and his purposes. I find, you know, you, maybe you've read these kinds of stories. Sometimes I think about, you know, we hopefully want our kids to grow up and serve the Lord, right? If we, if we uh, follow Christ... You know, hopefully we are following him and our kids are learning to follow him as well and we would want them to grow up and do the same thing. But, you know, maybe you've heard people ask, maybe you've been asked, maybe you've thought, what if my kid came home and said, I want to be a missionary to Afghanistan? What if, I, what if your kid came home and said, I want to be a missionary and live underground and smuggle God's word into North Korea? 
what do you say? Do you understand that that child really is not yours? God has entrusted that child into your care, that you would teach them, that you would raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord, that he might then use them for his glory and his purposes. I think we all understand the significance of those couple of questions. Some of the very real possibilities of going into some of these places for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are we eager to send our kids in those situations? Do we understand what's at stake? I don't know. I can't answer that question for you. I can't even answer that question for myself. My point is simply, Mary, we, again, we saw Hannah and 1 Samuel, there's this reality where they understood who God was, that God was faithful, that he could be trusted, and they said, this baby is yours, God. He is yours to do according to your plan. And then this is uh, recognized or finalized in the offering of a sacrifice. We see in verse 24 that... Uh, Luke tells us here that they would have brought either two turtle doves or two pigeons. The price to be offered was actually a lamb. But if you couldn't afford the lamb, then you were permitted to offer pigeons or turtle doves. And so we learn Mary and Joseph, they weren't the most wealthy, well-off people. Right? They, they were permitted under the law to give the lesser of the two sacrifices. Not because they didn't want to give a lamb. Not because they didn't think that giving a lamb was worthwhile of the sacrifice, and so we're just going to give a couple turtle doves instead. That would render them disobedient. We learn a little bit about their lowly estate when we read about the sacrifice that they offered. But the reality is this whole scene at the temple is a scene of great significance. Mary's purification has been completed. Jesus has been presented to God out of obedience to the law of God. And so this takes place. This is given to us as some introductory material. And then we're introduced to a man named Simeon. And so the next thing I want us to do this morning is meet Simeon. I just want us to meet Simeon. We learn a little bit about who he is in verses 25 through 27. Luke tells us there's a man in Jerusalem, tells us his name, Simeon. He also tells us that this man was righteous and devout. This simply means that he believed God. He believed what God had revealed. He believed in what God had said, and he had walked in accordance to it. He lived according to the things that had been declared by God. But we learned something else, and this is what I would submit to you this morning is probably the most significant reality. It says he was waiting. What was he waiting for in verse 25? The consolation of Israel. The reality of the consolation is that this is the primary thing that someone who believes in God would cling to. The Greek word paraklesis is where we get the word consolation, but it's also where we get the idea for the word comfort. Simeon was waiting for the comfort of the nation of Israel. So in our context, we learn, we see that he's a righteous man. 
who is eagerly awaiting the comfort of Israel from God. And, and in so recognizing or seeing or experiencing the faithfulness of God to his promises. We've seen this all throughout this month. Every individual that we've looked at, or with the case of the shepherds, it wasn't an individual, it was a group of individuals. Everything that they did hinged on the belief that God was faithful, that God could be trusted at his word. And here we have Simeon who believes God and he's awaiting to see, as we'll see in just a second, he gets to see firsthand the faithfulness of God to his promises. His hope ultimately was that God would comfort, excuse me, and in comforting, rescue Israel. This would have been prophesied all throughout the Old Testament. Prophet Isaiah a number of times speaks to God rescuing his people Israel. And in rescuing them, bringing comfort to them. So he's waiting for God to comfort his people. And Luke speaks over and over, not here, but over and over in his gospel account of uh, comforting from God to his people. In chapter 2, verse 30, he speaks to the reality that is the hope of salvation. That's the comfort of God. In chapter 1, verse 77, he speaks to God forgiving sin. The forgiveness of sin is the comfort of God. In 1910, he speaks of the reality of God saving the lost. These perfectly picture and encapsulate the comfort of God. Never mistake the comfort of God with plushy, ushy, ooey-gooey, everything is the way we want it. Because nowhere in God's word is the comfort of God described as such. The comfort of God is realized in the hope that we have of salvation in God through Christ. The the comfort of God is knowing that though I have no claim to it, the wretch that I am, God graciously and mercifully forgives sin. The comfort that I have from God through Christ is that he saves the lost, literally rescues us out of darkness and despair. And at the end of the day, this is what the righteous and the devout long for, the comfort of God. Simeon wasn't at the temple longing for anything else. All of the hoopla, everything that's going on in those moments and in those seasons and at the temple, the, the, the Savior of the world, the Son of God has been presented and he's awaiting the comfort of God. Righteous and devout people, those who follow God, they, they, they're awaiting, they're looking for the comfort of God, but that's found in hoping in the things that God has promised. Knowing what it is that God has promised to his people and then longing for that. It's an eternal perspective. It's not an earthly one. Simeon had this hope. And Luke doesn't go into great detail. He just simply tells us that under the influence of the Holy Spirit, excuse me, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, he's at the temple. He's at the temple when Mary, (coughs) excuse me, presents Jesus. Sorry, i got to grab this water. I forgot left down here. Luke doesn't give us details. He just tells us that 
The purification process is finished, or time is finished, and Mary's there to present Jesus, and Simeon's there. He's there when this takes place. But Luke also tells us that this man, Simeon, that we've been introduced to, doesn't tell us when, doesn't tell us at what point of his life, doesn't even tell us the circumstances of it. Simply says that Simeon had been promised of God that he would not die physically until he saw the Lord's Christ. And at this realization that Simon has now had, Simeon has now had, he is in the presence of the Lord's Christ, there's only one appropriate response. That's to praise God for the comfort that the baby will bring. He's been waiting for the comfort. He realizes now under the direction of the Holy Spirit that the comfort has come. And so he's going to praise God for the fact that he's faithful. Verses 28 through 32. And his reflection of the events that are unfolding are just that. It's, It's praise of God's goodness. Again, beginning in verse 28, you see... Probably in your Bible, like mine, it's, it's in quotations, it's indented a little bit there. We see this man, Simeon, is now talking. And he says, he's acknowledging who Jesus is. You're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. God, you've been faithful to your promise. I can depart in peace. Literally acknowledges the faithfulness of God. Primarily that God had promised comfort to the nation of Israel And the one who would bring that comfort has come. He says, I can die in peace because, God, of your faithfulness. But Simeon tells us also that this comfort wouldn't be just for the Jews. It wouldn't be just for the nation of Israel. He says there in verse 31, he's prepared this salvation and the presence of all people. He says, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Anybody who's not Jewish is a Gentile. Two kinds of people, Jews and Gentiles. And so Simeon is even acknowledging the larger scope of God's faithfulness and God's promises. God would make this provision, and it would be for all people. And it's worthy of the praise of mankind, and in this case here, the praise of Simeon. Luke would write all throughout his gospel how the comfort of God, the salvation of God would be for all people. Luke literally describes Jesus' entire mission as seeking and saving the lost. The salvation that this baby will will provide will not only be a salvation for all people, but it will bring some glory specifically to the nation of Israel. And the beginning of this process is being realized So Simeon simply praises God. And his praise of God gives way to, I call it a promise. I don't know that we would say dogmatically that Simeon has the ability to to make these promises to Mary and Joseph, but we do see that he's under the influence of the Holy Spirit. All right, And so as he recognizes what God is doing, and sending this comfort and sending the Christ in the baby Jesus, he goes from praising him to then speaking or promising of what will happen in the future. His praise gives way to a promise. In verse 33 through 35, we see this reality. 
So we're introduced, father and mother, marveling at what has been said about the baby. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. It's great to pause in the moment and celebrate and praise God for what he has done. But Simeon rightly recognizes that just because he's acted here and just because he's been faithful to the promises, he's not finished. He's not, okay, baby's here, you're good, go on about your business. There's yet uh, there's work yet to be done by God, and, and Simeon recognizes this. Not only is this baby the comfort of the nation of Israel and for Gentiles, but it's also the means whereby Jews and Gentiles alike will be divided. This baby that has come to bring comfort will also be what literally divides or reveals the hearts of men. And we understand this right on this side of history. You read through the Gospels. What happens at the end of the Gospels? They murdered him. But some believed. Some did. Some didn't. What, what happened in those moments when, when the Christ grew, became a man, began his earthly ministry, and then after about three years he would be arrested, he would be tried illegally, and then he would be murdered as the onlooking world learned we on this side of history with God's word have learned that some people looked at Jesus and understood and believed the faithfulness of God and the faithfulness to his promises in sending Jesus, and some did not. That's true today. Many people hear God's word, doesn't mean they believe it. Many people know God's word, that doesn't mean that they will believe it. This child, the Lord's Christ, is the revealer of hearts. And when hearts are revealed, there's literally a division. Those who believe and those who do not. This division boils down to what you say or what you believe to be true about this baby that has been born. So, I mean, also... That's not, I mean, that's significant, but that's not necessarily difficult for Mary and Joseph to bear, per se. And so he also, in this promise of recognizing what is yet to come, he speaks to the reality that a sword will be pierced through Mary's own soul also. This baby who has been consecrated and presented to the Lord is going to experience many sufferings, many painful things. And, and Mary, as this baby does, you will too. You will too is the message of Simeon. The pinnacle of this baby's suffering, we trust and we know, was this crucifixion. And the agony that his mother Mary must have experienced at his crucifixion I literally tried all week long to come up with a word to describe it. And I couldn't. If you have kids, you absolutely know that there is nothing worse than your kids hurting. Whether that's physical, whether that's emotional, whether that's 
spiritual, mental, whatever it is. There's not a parent worth a hill of beans that wouldn't trade places with their hurting children. Simeon says, Mary, you're going to suffer too. And you think with me, right? Because again, we, we, we understand the historical account. We've seen it. We have the, the fullness of it. It'd be about 33 years after Simeon would tell this to Mary that she would stand on the hillside and she would see her son suspended high above the earth. He'd been beaten. He'd been mocked. He'd been scorned. The crown of thorns was jammed in his head. His hands were pierced with nine-inch nails. Right between where his feet and his shin would come together. And she would see him suspended high above the earth. The last thing he would utter would be the words, It is finished. I don't know what, what went through Mary's mind. I'm not Mary. But there's no doubt in my mind that in some capacity, as she saw her son suspended above the earth, crying out in agony, then acknowledging, Father, I have done what you sent me to do. It is finished. And then the Bible tells us he breathed his last and he gave up his spirit. I have to imagine in those moments that Mary understood that she reflected upon what Simeon had said. All of the things that we've talked about. The division of the people. The belief and the lack of belief. She's seeing it full scale. As her son is suspended high above the earth. I couldn't even come up with a word to describe the agony that Mary must have been feeling. But all of this would be a part of God paving the way for mankind being made right with him. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't always understand it. God, he could have did it however he wanted. He could have did, he could have come up with whatever needed to be established before the foundations of the world that this would be how he would redeem sinful man. But he didn't come up with something else. He came up with this. That a baby would be born. And it would be born of lowly estate in a manger. And he would grow to be a man. And he would do great things. And he would speak great truths. And he would literally be the physical embodiment of God. And they would kill him for it. And that based on what you believe about that quick summation I just gave you... The determination of whether your heart is right with God or not would be made. This is the plan that God came up with before the foundation of the world. Simeon was a, a, a devout and righteous man, but he wasn't given much attention in Scripture. But in the short few verses, we see he's a man who is full of faith. 
He's so in tune with God. He's being led by the Holy Spirit. He knows that the child has been born. He sees the Jesus, or the the Christ. He celebrates. He praises God. He tells Mary, look, this is what's going to happen. And then he departs in peace. A faithful man who believed what God had promised. He had a confidence in the promises of God. And so I want to finish with just a few points of application, right? Like I've said all throughout this study, there's always a danger when you look at a narrative that is the the telling of a story. I try not to use the word story because the Bible's not full of stories. It's full of historical accounts. Um, But when you think of a narrative, you think of the telling of a story or a series of events. And lots of times when when we read a narrative or we tell a narrative, we can say, well, Simeon was righteous and devout, so be like Simeon. Sure, we should probably strive to believe God and follow God. But there's so much more when it comes to application in terms of what we see play out and what it is that God is doing. And so I want to give you just three things in closing this morning. Number one, God uses the obedience of his children to accomplish his purposes. Mary and Joseph had to be faithful and obedient to the law of God to be at the temple Uh, finishing the purification system, consecrating Jesus to the Lord, and giving him back to God. They were there, and God, uh, again, advances his purposes. In his supernatural leading, Simeon is at the temple, doesn't exactly tell us how or why, but he knows that this is the Christ. But there's a reason I would submit that this text begins by looking at Mary and Joseph and their faithfulness. Because they had to be at the temple being obedient to what God had declared. So God uses the obedience of his children to accomplish his purposes. I don't have any idea what may be going on in all of your lives this morning. I don't know where you came from. I don't know where you're going. I don't know what you did this past week. I don't know what's on your schedule this week. But I do know that God's expectation of you is obedience to his word. So you have to know his word. And if you know his word, then you are expected to walk in light of it. You remember earlier when we were talking about God had them consecrate their firstborn so that the children would literally say, why are we doing this? Man, that's a perfect picture or illustration of God using the obedience of his people to reach others. God accomplishes purposes through those who follow him in obedience. Are you following in obedience? Do you know what God expects of you? The only way you will know is from this. I don't know what y'all believe this morning, but God's not speaking in dreams. God's not speaking in visions. God's word is very clear that he has spoken right here. And if you don't know this, or you don't, and I don't, when I say know this, I don't mean do you know it from cover to cover. Do you have a growing knowledge of God's word? If you don't have a growing knowledge of God's word, it's going to be very difficult to walk in obedience to what God is declaring in his word. So we must know it, and we must walk in obedience to that which we know. Secondly, the people of God ought to be awaiting the fulfillment of God's promises.
Simeon was so content with what God had done in his life that he literally said, I'm ready to die. You can strike me dead right now in the Temple Mount, God, because you have been faithful to your promises. I am ready to depart in peace. And if you think about it, what are we celebrating this morning? The fulfillment of God's promise to bring peace, joy, and comfort to a lost, broken, and hurting world. God made good on his promise to redeem sinful man. But if you really trust in that promise, this is probably one of the things that pains me the greatest about the Christmas season as a pastor. If I can just level with you guys for just a second. The church today, and maybe historically, I don't know, I wasn't alive historically, I'm alive here now gives way more attention and focus to the birth of Christ than they do the fact that he's coming again. The birth really doesn't matter if he's not coming again. Because if he's not coming again, he's not faithful to his promises. We get so caught up in this season. And I'm not knocking Christmas. Right? God promised comfort. He did in Jesus. And you know what else God promised? That that Jesus who was wrongly crucified, died and was buried, he will come again. Only this time when he comes, he won't be born of a, as a baby in a manger of lowly estate. He will return as a righteous king and judge. Where he will judge the living and the dead. This doesn't get nearly as much attention, does it? It's just as much a part of Scripture in the whole of God comforting His people and delivering salvation and bringing hope as a baby was born in a manger. Simeon was a devout and righteous man. He lived his way in such a life that, or lived his life in such a way that people knew that he believed in God. I want to ask you a question this morning. Why celebrate Christmas today if you don't live the rest of your life like he's coming again? I've always marveled at, we watched last night, one of our favorite Christmas movies is um, The Star. You guys know that one, the cartoon movie about the donkey bow, and they're going to Bethlehem, the Savior's been born, you know, and Mary and Joseph are making their way there. And I've always just kind of marveled at, I'm not the discerner of hearts, I don't know the hearts of these celebrities, okay? Um, but you can see and hear a lot of the other things that they say and do. But I've always wondered it how, you know, one of the camels in the movie The Star is a very prominent person in our world today who speaks and says and does all kinds of things that absolutely contradict God's word. And yet the character that she portrays in this movie, she talks all about the Messiah who has come and the, the Son of God and all of these things. And I've always just kind of tried to, to reconcile this and I struggle with it, right? Now we may not be celebrities and we don't have influence in the world that we live in, but here we are on Sunday, December 25th, celebrating Christmas. And tomorrow, December 26th, we won't think twice about the fact that Jesus is coming again. 
I ain't trying to be a jerk this morning, but shame on us. Because God's promise includes that he's coming. If we're not going to celebrate, and when I say celebrate, I mean live our lives in such a way that it reflects the fact that we believe he's coming again, that maybe people would say about us, they're righteous and devout people who believe in God. We believe that he's coming again, so how we live our life matters. Look, if that's not our goal, if that's not our aim and our focus, then why celebrate Christmas? Sweet, a baby was born in a manger. None of us would reduce it to that. But 364 days a year, that's exactly what we do. Lastly, living in light of God's promises is not always easy. It's not always easy. Remember, Simeon told Mary her son would suffer and that his suffering would bring suffering to her as well. God's ways are not our ways. We've touched on this already, but imagine his ways are that he would give his son to be murdered so that we could be made right with him. None of us would write that story. But yet that's how God declared that the redemption of sinful man would take place. Reality is... Mary would consecrate her son to the Lord 41 days after his birth. And God would call upon her to trust him. Even though what he would do in calling upon her to trust him would be arguably the most difficult thing she would ever have to navigate. Just as God used the suffering of the Christ to reveal the hearts of men then, our hearts are revealed in the times of difficulty too. I don't always know what God's doing. I don't always understand day in and day out the fullness of his plan, the whole scope of what he's accomplishing. But how I respond in those moments says a lot about what I believe about God. Do we trust him? Do you and I trust God? Do we trust God when it is difficult? When it doesn't make sense in our minds? I don't know. I can't answer that question for you. But we can know God will accomplish his purposes according to his plans. Our responsibility is simply to trust him. And live not only reflecting on the promises that have been fulfilled, the birth, but live in light of the promises we're waiting to see fulfilled. The end of the year is dedicated to celebrating the birth of the Savior every year. Every day of our lives should be dedicated to the fact that he's coming back. The significance of Christmas lies in the fact that a baby that was born once as a man is coming back as a king and a judge. And may our hearts anticipate his arrival, not just at Christmas, but every single day. May we, like Simeon, this, if I was going to say be like Simeon, I guess this is it. Live your life in anticipation of the fulfillment of God's promises. Sometimes it's going to be easier than others. You've got to live in light of what you do know. And what we do know is that Jesus is coming again. And that ought to impact the way we live our lives. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness.
I thank you, God, that you promised to make a way for sinful man to be redeemed. I thank you for the hope and the comfort that is found in Christ. And I thank you, God, that that same Christ is coming again. And God, I don't want to minimize what we celebrate with the birth of Jesus. And I pray, God, that I've communicated in a way that people would know and understand that. But I also pray, God, that you would challenge our hearts today. Because I know I'm guilty of focusing more on the big times and the big seasons and losing sight of some of the other promises that you've made day to day in my life. And God, you've called me to live my life in such a way that it would reflect the fact that I believe your son is coming again. And so God, stir our hearts today. Encourage us. May we realize, may we recognize that this hope that Simeon awaited for, the comfort of sinful man. God, we saw this comfort as knowing that sins are forgiven, that a relationship is restored, God, that we're saved by grace because of faith in Jesus. So, Father, work however you need to today. Help the heart that may be hurting and wondering how it is that they trust you. I don't know. But God, I pray that you would give strength where it's needed. I pray that you would give courage where it's needed. And I pray, God, ultimately that today would be a day where we would seek to live faithfully in light of the promise that you've given that your son Jesus is coming back. And God, as we live our lives for your glory, may those around us look on and say, how do you do what you do? Why do you live the way that you live? Why is the birth of a baby significant. Work in our hearts today, God, for our good, but most importantly, God, for your glory. In Jesus' name.